Welcome to Politics Pulse, produced by WKXL and podcast on all the platforms that matter. I'm Matt Robeson, and with me once again is Sarah Jones, Editor-in-Chief at Politicus USA, who is not only an expert on all things political, especially political psychology, which we're going to get into, uh, but is also coming to us embedded deep in Trump country in Pennsylvania, which gives her some really fascinating insights. And I'm looking forward to hearing all of them again. Sarah, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. I am thrilled not only to have you here, but to have you here on the other side of New Year's. Um, I think like most people, we are looking forward with hope and some trepidation to the rest of this year. And let's get into that topic. Let's talk about 2021 and what is in store for us. You know, you and I were going back and forth before we got on the air about what we should talk about. It is uh, a target-rich environment. There's a lot <laughs> that we could uh, uh, hit on here. And it was part of that. I, I think we kind of came to a unifying theme and it's sort of the, uh, how do you solve the problem of Trump? That seems to have been the defining political question for the last five years, for the media, for Democrats, and, and for Republicans, frankly. And it seems to now, in the waning days of the Trump administration, as we look to usher him, thankfully, out the door, that seems to be, the answer to that question seems to be what will define our politics for the next year, two years, perhaps four years. So l- let me start off um, let me start off with the media equation of this. Um, you are a member of the media. What should the media do to deal with Trump, to cover Trump, to relate to his fountain of lies, Trump? Um, how should the media deal with Trump going forward once he is no longer in office? That is a great question. There is so much to talk about today. I just can't, I'm so a little overwhelmed with like 2021. Are we going to survive, you know, the basic questions of our time? (laughs) But I think for the media, I don't know that we can rely on the media to do the right thing, but here's what I would hope they would do. Number one, psychology, um, studies in psychology have proven that if you are going to repeat a lie, it will seep into the public consciousness as a truth. If you repeat it, you know, you just say Trump is uh, disputing this election. And then you, after that, start fact checking it. This is no good. It actually sets in the in the whole public mind that there's a cause for him to dispute this. So you have to um, you have to tell the truth first and then repeat his lie. So you say in an election where there's been no election fraud proven, Donald Trump is again making a, another baseless claim. And I know that sounds is very persnickety, but it actually makes a big difference because if you look at headlines, especially, it's very difficult. We, we struggle with this at Politicus USA, and I'm always telling people, don't put his claim first. But of course, the other fact that we deal with in the media is if we, if we put any sort of, you know, too strong of a word in the title, we're accused of being fake news, and then they take those articles down. So uh, you have to be, you have to walk this fine line. Um, I don't don't think it's going to be that bad, that kind of authoritarian control over even the teeniest words that you use, that's going to go away as soon as Trump leaves. And the media, you'll see them go after Joe Biden in a way they would never go after Donald Trump, because he had that very you know, 
he's gonna call you fake news and then everybody's gonna go into what you did and say what 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 in here was fake oh you used Aon and it was among remember among the bushes he was among the bushes <laughs> he wasn't in the bushes and so I think the media has a big challenge, but my hope is that they he, he's going to turn into a troll. They need to ignore him as much as they possibly can because he has no relevance. The relevance he will have after he leaves office uh, is following his criminal uh, trial, should there be any. Um, where did he and his family move to since nobody seems to want to have them and they can't go back to New York? Uh, maybe another country, you know, what does that mean? What about all the financial uh, misgivings and misdeeds that they've committed while in office? Are we going to investigate that? And now we have the election fraud that he has clearly committed once again. And are we going to cover that? Of course, that should be covered. But when he says, oh, Joe Biden, you know, he has a collection of ants that he abuses, because this is just how, you know, ridiculous his accusations are. That he, that he should be ignored. You know, it's it's so interesting that you say that because I think we've been reminded really forcefully in, in the tail end of 2020, just how much our democracy, our whole country, our whole society depends on a very thin shield of individual people, women and men who are in positions in media and politics to uphold principles of democracy. You, you've seen this in the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, who has stood up to Donald Trump, has stood up to his own party and stood on principle. Um, even someone as despicable as William Barr in the final analysis said, no, I'm not going to seize voting machines. I'm not going to appoint a special counsel here to go after Trump's uh, baseless conspiracy theories. And I think it is a little bit frightening to think about that in the context that you're raising of the media, that it sounds like to some extent what you're saying is, look, there are a bunch of editors out there and they may or may not all have the vision that you have. They may also be compromised by incentives because they know that something with Trump in it is a, a great route to clicks and, and headlines and coverage and eyeballs. And so it, it sounds like what you're suggesting is there is sort of a collective responsibility here to kind of hit the mute button on all of this noise over the next couple of years. Absolutely. And it's funny that you bring that up because we we don't make, um, we didn't get into this business to make money. And so that has never been, we don't have a board of directors. I, have, I, don't, I have no one, we don't have shareholders. I have no one that I have to say, make X amount of dollars for it, luckily, because especially in the last four years, this, this business has become, and we've seen way too many uh, liberal and progressive outlets die because of it. It's been way too difficult to survive, not even make money. But we see uh, all of Trump's behavior towards the press elevated very corporate news. Corporate news makes a lot of money from Trump. It's a reciprocal relationship that has worked for everyone, even though they claim in public to, you know, sometimes they will scold him or, or they did a lot of great reporting, definitely using those resources. And we needed those resources to do investigative journalism, which has been, um, you know, the savior of our country in many ways during Trump. So I'm not anti-corporate media, but I do, we have to remember that they have a goal to make money. They have shareholders. They're not in the business to educate the public. That has always been what our goal was. How do you educate people who are busy working all day so that they can vote in a way that 
makes the best sense for their family, for their lives, for their children, you know, and how do you make that easy to absorb and how do you make it um, something that compels people enough that they want to read it, but doesn't elevate somebody like Donald Trump? Yeah, it's, it's a real problem. And, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of one of the great sources of political prognostication and insight, The Simpsons. They had an episode, oh gosh, it's gotta be 20 years ago. It was a Halloween episode where the premise was that um, ads come to life and run wild. And the solution was just don't look, just look away from them and the noise machine dies. And to me, that, that kind of reminds me a little bit of, so sure, there is a collective responsibility on the part of the media, of editors, of people in your position, um, but there's also sort of a collective responsibility on Democrats. And that, uh, you know, it, it seems to be a proposition that they've really struggled um, to, to wrap their heads around over the last five years. Obviously, you can't ignore the sitting president of the United States. They've tried the political strategy of equating uh, every Republican on the ticket with Donald Trump. That kind of worked in 2018. It worked fairly well in the House. Uh, when Trump wasn't on the ballot and the best way for voters to express their frustration with Trump was to vote against Republicans. It did not work particularly well in 2020 where Trump went down in all of the key swing states, but Republicans further down the ticket seemed to more or less thrive and we failed to take back any state houses on, on the Democratic side. So what is the right strategy in this post-presidency Trump era for the Democrats in terms of dealing with Trump? Is it just don't look? Is it pushback forcefully? Is it applying some kind of discipline? How should they start to think about this? Well, I mean, they're in a really tough position because too much pushback and focus on Trump and it's, and it's too much negativity and people tune out. But right now, what you have is a public, they literally just take this last stimulus quote, stimulus. I don't call $600 a stimulus. I don't know who came up with that idea, but $600 are stimulating like zero things. But um, that whole debacle that, you know, Democrats wanted 2000 and Republicans weren't having it, that went down. And guess what the public came away with? Congress doesn't want us to have this money, but Trump does. Now, why would they come up with that idea? Well, because the media then reported when Trump at the last minute after only because he wanted to be able to silence Twitter, um, you know, came out and said, I want this 2000. And then, oh, the next day, and I was like, we know this next thing is coming. Might've even been that night. Oh, by the way, and I'm also gonna veto the NDAA because, you know, Twitter's not gonna, he, he didn't come out and say this, but this is my like, summation of him. Twitter's not gonna silence me anymore, you know, bigly things to say, whatever. So he's, that's what his whole agenda is to, to get retribution, to, uh, to punish people who didn't allow him to spread the number of lies. Twitter let him spread many, he's still on there, you know, they've let him violate the rules day after day, but um, he's, so the public came away from that. I got off track. The public came away from it because there's so much to say, so much garbage. The public comes away and they think they heard the president wanted 2000 and Congress turned, turned it down. Right. So that's what Democrats are dealing with. It's, and that's exactly why I, I wish the media would be clear. They're not going to do that because it's the he said, she said model. And, and there's a lot of safety in that for people. Uh, when you start calling things and, and saying what you think they are, you put yourself out there to be criticized by people in a way that um, many, many of us cannot afford, you know, to do that. Um, 
with Democrats. So here's an example that I really liked. Well, I'll give you two that just happened. I'll try to make it really fast, though. John Ossoff was asked by Fox News a couple days ago to make a comment on Reverend Raphael Warnock uh, by Fox News, and they were trying to revive some old scandal. And Ossoff turned around and repeated in his long kind of response three times that Kelly Loeffler has been campaigning with the Klansmen. Kelly Loeffler campaigns with the KKK. And then he closed with Kelly Loeffler campaigns with the KKK. So that is, and he did it three times. Boy, did he take a little page out of Trump's book. Make it simple, send your message. It doesn't matter what they're asking you. Now, I say that I'm not advocating for our pol political, um, elected political officials to not answer questions from journalists, but I don't know that Fox News uh, in that question was trying to get to a, a real thing that matters to people. So when the question is a setup, when it's a, a lie basically, or some kind of diversion, then go ahead and, and do that, turn it around and make the point that you wanna make. Now, what's more important to people in Georgia, uh, a state with a high number of minorities in it, that someone is campaigning with the Klansman or that you know Warnock had, I can't even remember what, it was so stupid and something he had already addressed. So I don't, I don't remember what it was. Then we have um, today, yesterday, um, uh, Chuck Schumer. You know, he's kind of getting a little fire on his belly lately. I'm not enjoying it. Um, he said, hey, uh, sent on, on Twitter, hey, Senator Ted Cruz and his gang, you want to investigate election fraud? Start with this. And the link to the Washington Post story about Trump in that hour-long call pressuring the Georgia Secretary of State to recalculate the votes in his favor. So, Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, I... I well, I, I want to turn this into a, into a question. I'm really glad you brought up Georgia because it, it sort of makes me wonder if, and I, I'm curious for your perspective on this, has Georgia given Democrats sort of a, a bit of a blessing in disguise in starting to have to test drive how to message in a post-Trump era? Because as I mentioned before, the thesis going into the 2020 election was, well, it's, it's a simple proposition. It's like a syllogism. It's like Trump is bad. Republicans equal Trump. Therefore, Republicans are bad. That didn't really work. And it seems to me, and I'm not nearly as close an observer as you, but it seems to me that Democrats have had to rethink that whole proposition without Trump on the ballot and with a very different messaging landscape presented to them. So do you think that they've been able to kind of get a handle on what that might look like? in a post-Trump future for the next couple of years, test driving that in Georgia? And do you think that the kinds of approaches that they're using there would work in your neck of the woods in, in, in Western Pennsylvania, the kind of territory that Democrats need to win back in the coming years? Well, I actually lived in Georgia for several years and uh, volunteered on Obama 2008 uh, get out the vote effort. So I know up close the, the voters of Georgia um, not all of them, obviously, but I spent a year doing that. Um, and so, you know, I think that, first of all, I think what Democrats are doing there and the messaging they have going, they, they've been given a lot of latitude by the way that Trump behaved and Republican silence because of that behavior. I was afraid they weren't going to take that, uh, but it seems like they are getting a little fire in there and they're, they're pushing back and they're coming out. They understand that their, their base need them to push back a little harder. And I do see them stepping up and doing that. And I do think that that 
that attitude would work here in Pennsylvania as well. What people want though, it's not about saying Trump's bad. And I didn't, I thought that Nancy Pelosi, for example, really tried to always push the kitchen table issues. Um, the, the media isn't interested in that. And no one wants to cover policy because nobody reads it. It's boring to people, right? So the idea is how do you let people know who has policies that are helping them? Well, Nancy Pelosi talked about her policies Democrats had pretty consistently almost every day she messaged that, that out and it didn't resonate with people still don't even know who has these policies and who doesn't that will help them. So it isn't that she wasn't doing it. It's that the media a lot of times doesn't pick it up. So that's why I like take these short, um, quick kind of a little more, I guess they're more populist way of dealing with these issues that we, we just referenced and try to slide a one policy instead of every policy, just try to slide a one into that to message with people. But I do think that this attitude is very effective. People you know, want someone to stand up for them. Yeah, go ahead. Well, that's no, that's interesting. I'm, I'm so, you know, that kind of ties into a, a basic proposition about the voters that I, I, and I think this is a real challenge for the Democratic Party is what is their basic story here? You know. The UC Berkeley sociologist, Arlie Russell Hawk's child, put forward a, a sort of a, a story, a deep story. And this was reported in The Atlantic recently. And it goes kind of like this. You're an older white man without a college degree, and you're standing in line with hundreds of millions of Americans. And that line goes up a hill and you can see at the top of the hill, the American dream. It's kind of, it's up there. And behind you, there are a lot of people who, you know, many of them are poor. Some of them are non-white. Some of them are not born in America. Some of them are, you know, very young or, or very old. And it's scary to you to look backwards. There are so many people behind you. You wish them well, but you've waited a long time in that line and you're stuck in that line. And worse than stuck, you're stigmatized because liberals in the media say that every traditional thing you believe is racist and sexist. And now someone like Donald Trump comes along and says, hey, you know what? The people who are in line behind you, they're cutting in front of you. Something's wrong. And maybe that line you're in isn't great, but at least you've got your place. But now you're falling further and further behind. So it seems like, I guess when the question is, do you buy that story? Does that resonate for you? Is that is that kind of does it capture the feelings of the of the Trump voters that you see around you um, in this quintessential Trump country? And do you think Democrats, if that's the narrative that Trump has been able to successfully pitch, do you think that Democrats in the coming years have a counter narrative with a little fire in the belly that's equally powerful and that kind of addresses that that angst? Well, number one, um, I, I see that story, I think is, there is truth to that story, but it's also a whitewash of the real issue. And a real issue is not new. It didn't come along with Trump. And so we're not going to get rid of it just because he leaves. This issue we thought was Sarah Palin in the Republican party. That party has become toxic. Why? Because they can't sell their policies because they don't have policies that actually help people without lying to people and how are they going to lie to people? Well, first they, um, you know, got together with churches in a way to kind of sell their message in a new way. And, and then along, you know, they, they've really campaigned 
uh, quite a bit on racism, basically. It was very blatant, um, and, it, and it, is, it is again. But they put a populist sort of face over these policies. They did it. Let's just take Sarah Palin, because if we focus on Donald Trump, we get lost, you know, and, and it isn't him. She was out there, and I, I think they did, they used her and abused her, and she lost everything, basically, um, being their puppet of sort of populism. And Donald Trump is doing that right now. What's going to happen to him when he leaves office? I think if you look at Sarah Palin, you know, yeah, he's going to annoy us for many years, but the man's going to end up with some serious legal problems that he wouldn't have had if he didn't do, if he hadn't run for president. And so they have, that we have this whole thing that's been going on. If you take the South, for example, and waiting in line, no, you know what? It's about the Civil War. I lived there. I had people call me a carpetbagger. I had people tell me that the North and the city slickers, we stole their way of life. That politics of resentment is what we still see. And they, in the Republican Party. Now, everyone is resentful these days. I, I think the left and the right, and the left is resentful for maybe some of the same reasons about not being treated fairly, um, if you look at the, the bottom line of it. But the Repu the Democratic Party isn't, isn't, they're not messaging on that and they're not trying to tell people, you know, you're, you deserve more, you'd have more if these brown people weren't coming to take it from you, you know? And so that's, there's a big difference there. So I'm not sure that the, the story isn't new and I don't think you fix the story how about we look at what's, when Trump leaves, we have this huge opportunity, in my opinion, because he opened up the awareness that, that you know, for the Me Too movement to begin, he opened up an, an awareness and appreciation for Black Lives Matter. We are now at a place where, yeah, we've, everything has been decimated. We have been, the destruction of our country and the negativity is overwhelming. On the other hand, we have an opportunity here to say, now that everyone's paying attention to how democracy has been destroyed, let's rebuild it in a radical way that helps people. Sarah Jones here on WKXL. We're gonna take a quick break. We'll be right back to talk more about the post-Trump future. We're back on Politics Pulse. I'm Matt Robeson here on WKXL, and I'm with Sarah Jones, editor of Politicus USA, bringing us a ton of insights into this unifying theme where we're dealing with the future in a post-Trump presidency world. How do the media, Republicans, Democrats, the rest of the world deal with Donald Trump, Trumpism, the forces that he unleashed? Right before the break, Sarah, you were suggesting that actually there's a silver lining here, that Trump has sort of created the conditions where there's there's been a backlash and kind of a, a, a productive one uh, in terms of interest in Black Lives Matter in the Me Too movement. Um, it does sort of tie into this question of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. We were talking a moment ago about how Democrats think about their messaging, their positioning, their reaction. Do they just ignore Trump in the future? There is kind of a little bit of a, a, a problem, a, a challenge for the left to navigate in the next few years. They have a Biden presidency. They have, at least for the next two years, a House majority. Um, and th there's going to be a very, very closely divided Senate. And so there's sort of two ways for progressives to go. One is to 
continue to agitate, to sort of push the Overton window, to, to push the envelope, to kind of be hitting the accelerator on what the Democratic Party is willing to push for um, and follow their, their theory that driving the base, driving the excitement in the Democratic base is done through that kind of uh, bold activism. And then there's sort of another path. Uh, I, I'd call it the Elizabeth Warren path of, yes, um, you know, being uh, rhetorically um, aggressive, but being more of an inside operator, um, working within the administration, working within uh, Pelosi's House leadership to try to slowly advance your agenda and meld it into what the rest of the more centrist wing of the Democratic Party is doing. So what should progressives do? What strategy should they follow? How can they be most effective? In my opinion, I think that progressives can be most effective by doing actually both of the things that you just mentioned. And But it's about how you do that. So I, I hope they've learned how to nudge to give political cover without costing political capital. Because we saw what happened when a president loses political capital, which happened to President Obama when he was trying to pass the Affordable Care Act. You know, it makes it harder to get this thing that we all want passed. It may, may not have been the best thing that everyone wanted, but it was the only thing that was going to be passed, right? And so instead of uh, focusing, I, I think that pressure though, that pre keep up the pressure, the pro progressives, if we don't have any pressure from progressives to open up the possibilities of what the future could be, while you know the Biden administration is busy cleaning up Trump's mess, then we're not gonna get, we're not gonna go forward. So progressives have that great role of reminding everyone that we wanna restore and protect previous gains that were made under Obama. We wanna go farther than that as well though. We want you know, these big changes to be made on climate change and may, there are many other policies. I would suggest the living wage, healthcare, all of these things. We know that Joe Biden is interested in listening to progressives on those policies. And so it's about how it's pushed not pushed as a criticism of the president or of the, the leadership, pushed as a criticism of the people who oppose any of those changes is much more effective because it unifies the Democratic Party, it gives political cover, and it allows this hope to grow of what we can be without progressive and liberal voices talking about all the things that we should be doing. We don't have that hope. You know, we're not going forward. So that's not to say these that, that, that Kamala Harris and Joe Biden don't want to take us forward. I, I think they do, but they've, they've inherited this, um, a government in collapse that they need to retool. Yeah, that's, you know, it's so, I, I think that's so well said, especially, you know, I, I think like many people, I'm in the midst of reading uh, the memoir from former President Obama. And it really does put me back in, in mind of a time when I was working in Congress and trying to pass the stimulus. And there was a lot of unhelpful chatter uh, from the center right and uh, the left um, that he catalogs very well in the book. And I, I think that's, you're giving a very useful guidepost about how to be it's possible to, to do both, right? It's, it's possible to push and be constructive. But of course, it also sets up the next thing that I want to talk about here, which is, um, yes, there are some challenges of positioning of how to work across this very broad democratic coalition that the party has uh, on the left. But it, I'm reminded a little bit of what Albert Einstein said 
he, I think he was advising students. He said, don't worry about your problems with mathematics. I assure you that mine are still greater. And I feel like that could be kind of uh, what the Republicans could be saying to Democrats right now. Don't worry about your problems sorting out your business. I assure you that our whole problem with, because they never really solved the problem of Trump, right? They sort of capitulated to the problem of Trump. I mean, if you just hit the rewind button to 2016 during the primaries, all the people who were the leaders of the Republican party then and now were calling him absolutely bonkers, uh, a total threat to democracy, uh, completely unelectable, just, you know, an abomination. And then they turned around five minutes later and they pulled a Lindsey Graham and it's like, well, you know, he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. That problem has never really gone away. And so in recent weeks, I think you've seen some really interesting positioning happening from various Republicans, perhaps some who may be eyeing a run in 2024. And Politicus USA has been doing some really good write-ups, some analysis and reporting on this uh, in terms of Josh Hawley and Nikki Haley. Um, we could get into, into any of them, but what does that prompt for you? What do you? How do you think that this problem overall is taking shape on the Republican side? How are they trying to deal with the problem of Trump? <laughs> They are in a defining moment, um, and I fear that once again, they are not up to the task, but they are in a defining moment in the post-Trump era. And, you know, you you brought up, I think we were talking about um, Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz. They're both potential 2024 presidential contenders, and they're trying to inherit Trump's base of support. And so instead of standing up for democracy or for their country, which really should be the very least that we expect of our elected officials, uh, they're instead uh, waging war on democracy. And, um, you know, I, I just think that, oh, oh, remember yesterday, I think it was the QAnon representative, Taylor Green got kicked off the house floor for refusing to wear a mask. So you see these, this Republican party has gone so far, they've been over backwards so far to accommodate Trump, and he is taking up all the air. I don't see very many people with spines or integrity that are left in the party. Um, you know, we did see uh, Representative Chip Roy of Texas, who kind of sent a message to his party, you can't have it both ways. Um, if you're not going to certify these election results, then we shouldn't seat these folks that, you know, won in those states, and many of them are Republicans, right? Um, so I don't think they're up to this task. I think that this they're going to continue to crumble. They're more of a, of a political cult uh, than they are a, a party. Um, and, you know, I did, I have some thoughts about, uh, which kind of came up when you brought up Nikki Haley, because goal, I don't- please. You know, I don't see her. I know she she had huge promise, right, when she broke in onto the scene, and she was very popular. And then I, in my point of view, Donald Trump took advantage of her popularity, and he has kind of ruined her. She now has very little credibility, and she's you know running around focused on, uh, as Jennifer Rubin wrote, you know, focused on white grievance and Christian nationalism, when she had a, a real. She had gravitas, she had charisma, she had hope to be a star in that party. And she may still try to be that star by grasping on to Trump's face. But you know, she doesn't have the psychopathology to you know, get their base. And I think that's something that they 
they know very well that it's it's hard to find this charismatic cult leader that their base is going to fall in love with, like they did Sarah Palin, and then they did Donald Trump. And Nikki Haley's not that person. None of these people, frankly, Josh Hawley isn't that person. Ted Cruz is not that person. They, none of these people have what it takes. You, they're going to have to find someone new or someone who's just coming in now that really can do, have that power over people. And I think, you know, you look at it, it has to be somebody whose narcissism has reached a new level, an exaggerated sense of power, um, hypersensitive to how they're perceived by others. See, Nikki Haley was not that person, publicly devalues others as being inferior. These are all symptoms that you kind of look for if you're looking for a cult leader. And that's, you can line all of the the, the symptoms up of a cult leader, you can line up with Donald Trump's behavior, including, you know, takes advantage of members of his cult, sexual advantage of members of his cult. Well, he hasn't perhaps done that now, then we may find out later. Um, who knows what's coming down the road for us. But we already know that they're okay with him taking, he could rape people in front of them, they would be fine with it. It doesn't matter. So yeah, he set all that up. I don't see Josh Hawley having that charisma or that level of pathology. As, yeah, you, you know, know, it's so interesting. I, I did a little reporting on this myself for an article that I wrote for uh, Raw Story and Alternate uh, about six months ago, where I interviewed some Republicans, some off the record, some on background. They weren't really uh, anxious to talk about this. But, you know, one of them um, very thoughtfully kind of pointed out to me that, look, one of the principal uh, things that Trump did to the Republican Party in 2016 is he obliterated the traditional Republican Party swim lanes, sort of the the, the archetypal uh, ways of defining oneself as a candidate that Republicans had used in previous decades. You know, the sort of uh, Christian conservative Rick Santorum type, the sort of uber nationalist Pat Buchanan type, the sort of old guard George. H.W. Bush, and then I guess you could say George W. Bush type, um, even the neocon type. Um, and, and those had all kind of gotten thrown in a blender and thrown out the other side. And what you ended up with was sort of the Trump brand of the Republican Party. And it, it seems to me that part of what you're saying is that now all Republican candidates, all Republican politicians almost have to, by default, define themselves in relation to Trump. Are they trying to be Trump? Are they trying to be Trump light? So sort of um, the same positions, but without the same level of provocation, which is sort of the, the Josh Hawley model. Um, or are they trying to define themselves against Trump? And there are Republicans who are in that vein. There's Ben Sasse from Nebraska. There's Mitt Romney from Utah who are willing to openly, there's even Liz Cheney uh, from Wyoming who are <laughs> willing to come out and openly criticize Trump um, and they're sort of trying to define this space, but it's not clear that there's that there's any oxygen for it. I mean, do you see a possibility for a for for a, any uh, traction for any of those non-Trump identities to emerge in the next few years, or is it really all just got to be about who is the successor to Trump? Well, if they don't stand up now to the, trying to overthrow. Uh, a democratic certified election, they really have no, they have no party of, if you, you know, there's no, there's no political party. If the party is saying, if we don't win, then the election was fraud. That's not a, a political party within 
a functioning democracy. It's just sort of like that simple, the end. You either stand up for democracy, even when you don't win, or you, or you are not a member of that democracy. And so I don't know that other people are, are coming out and saying this, but I don't see that entire party as even wanting to be a member of a democracy. They, they are very bent on getting power and keeping power. And when they have power, then they go out of their way to feed the hands that uh, feed them, the corporations, and who knows now, other countries, we, you know, we will find out about that in the years to come, I'm sure. But these are not folks that are interested in legislating, they're not interested in governing. Trump has not been governing, and certainly not since he lost the election, but I would, you know, I would say he really did very little the entire four years he was in office. He very rarely actually worked what he was always doing was campaigning and raising money for himself and his family and his allegedly for his, you know, next run. But now we find out that a lot of his campaign money has been funneled off um, for personal reasons, personal interests, I suppose. So I don't see, I just don't see how they can, you know, they'll, they'll, they're on their last legs, so to speak. They're going to make a lot of trouble for us in the next 10 years if they don't get their act together. Our challenge is, are we going to stop them? Are the, are the people going to wake up to what's going on, enough people? Because as you just you know, pointed out last time, in the last segment, um, a lot of people voted for Republican representatives. They voted for state Republicans. So do, do, does the public know what's going on? And if they do, is this what they, they want to live under this kind of authoritarian dictatorship so long as it's their party, the party they uh, identify with because that seems to be the real issue and you brought up earlier the the the, um, the the narrative of the Republican Party the narrative of Trump and that story and I think that another part of that story that so rarely gets told that I see all the time living among Trump supporters is that this is really not it's not about policies they don't care about policies it doesn't matter to them they will whip you know turn on a dime about what they support it's about country music, going to church. It's a lifestyle. You know, it really is a cult lifestyle. You cannot have a different idea in that cult. Everything, your friendships, your businesses, everything is built around that. Yeah, you know, it really does raise that. That's so interesting. It does raise a sort of a, an existential question for Democrats, which is, do you have a way over the next 10 years to overcome that. Because the fact of the matter is, Democrats are viewed sort of the party brand is very much about you know, a party that is interested in sort of prosecuting a cultural agenda that may not line up with what folks in your neck of the woods uh, find traditional and comfortable. Um, and they view themselves, that, that's why I think the Hillary Clinton deplorables comment which got overplayed, but it, it resonated so much because it really did seem to tap into the perception of the perception, the perception of, of, of voters, of Republicans, of what Democratic elites or elites in general think of them. And you raise the fact that Democrats did not manage to make much in the way of inroads, especially in state legislatures, um, and certainly not in the U.S. House of Representatives. So they didn't really pick up many of the levers that they otherwise 
could have used to undo things like gerrymandering and other advantages that Republicans have given themselves in the campaign process. So there are some big challenges back to Democrats for a second for Democrats to surmount if they want to work around this. I mean, even if it is kind of uh, the Republican Party is kind of in the thrall of the Trump cult, it doesn't, I don't see a lot of ways for Democrats to claw that back to undo that to, uh, unless they get at some of these fundamental issues of how they're perceived, or they get at uh, erasing some of these barriers uh, to voter access and, and voting mechanisms um, that, that give Republicans advantages. I, do you, I, maybe I'm being too bleak about this. I mean, do you, do you see a path forward for sort of breaking the Republican party out of that hammerlock of Trumpism? I don't think that we can break them out of it. I think what has to happen if we are to be successful and to protect our democracy is that we we are going to have to wall them off and and shame them. That's the only tool that we have left that really has not been used very much and it's partly the media's fault. They have to be shamed for attacking democracy for trying to overthrow an election just to start there. I mean, obviously they were not shamed by any of the things they supported Trump doing in the last four years, including that quote, perfect call, um, you know, the Ukraine call, which ironically we have now seen mirrored in this Georgia call. Um, so all of the things that Susan Collins expectations notwithstanding that, you know, Trump had learned his lesson. Those, they're never gonna change because they're not forced to change. Their voters still support them. And as long as they are protected by gerrymandering and by the media, they're not going to change. So what's left is that we all have to change. Um, and I would say, I mean, if you're really gonna push the issue, how do we do all this? Well, one of the things that people can do is stop reading um, things that advance false agendas and allow Republicans to lie without with impunity. That's one thing people can do that they have power over. Speak up about it. You know, you don't have to. Um, you don't have to have cancel culture going on, but you could speak your mind that this wasn't accurate. It wasn't a good representation. It didn't help people learn anything about what's good for their family and their home. And the other thing is, what I'm not sure that Democrats are so you know, as bad at messaging as they have been in the past. I feel like they've been working really hard on that. I've, I've seen evidence of that. But again, it's it's not sexy, right? It's not sexy to talk about infrastructure. It's one reason Donald Trump said every week was infrastructure week, but it never was. It was always a scandal, scandal sexy. That's why the media loves Trump. He brings clicks, he's sexy, it's always changing policy trying to help people get affordable care and, and um, protect them from a raging pandemic, that's not sexy. So it's a big challenge for Democrats. Uh, yeah, go ahead. You know, in the, in the two minutes or so that we have left, I mean, it, maybe I'm picking, maybe I'm, this is my hopeful 2021 forward-looking mind trying to key in on something, but it does sound like you're suggesting Look, there, there is the arc of the political universe is long, but it does kind of bend toward justice. If you think about um, some of the attitudinal changes that we've seen in our society over the last uh, 15 or 20 years, uh, you know, it, it, it does seem like part of your message here is, look, there is not a quick fix 
to any of this. It took us decades to get into it. Um, it's going to take us some time to get out of it. And there's a lot of spade work to do in between. That's my interpretation, but I'll give you the last word on it. Is that is that close to that's, right? That's absolutely right. And the other thing is that what Donald Trump has done for us, he did us a big favor. He has made it okay to say and do anything. So you can push as far as you want and be as radical as you want in your agenda for the people. And you have Donald Trump to thank for that because nobody balked when he did it. Absolutely. Well, that is a great last word to end on. Sarah Jones, thank you so much for coming back. Uh, always enjoy our conversations. You really uh, put your finger on the, the pulse exactly like we're trying to do of what's going on around the country uh, in this segment. And people can see your work. Uh, tell our listeners they should go to Politicus USA. Yes, politicususa.com. And uh, my Twitter handle is Politicus Sarah. And I will be writing more in the future. I have been ill with COVID, but I am getting better. So hopefully I'll be writing more soon. Thank goodness that you <laughs> are recovering. All right. Well, best of health uh, and best of luck in the new year. Sarah Jones, looking forward to uh, having you back sometime real soon. Thank you so much.